Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. So uh, Ed came this morning, Ed is greeting you at the door, and he said, well, I'm going to forget, you said, was it, did you say it's Ukrainian um, epiphany? Oh, no, that's not even right. Anyway, whatever. I, he, I was, I took it the wrong way. I was like, listen, if you want to undecorate, feel free. But um, but he was saying, no, no, it's great. We're celebrating because it's an, we, some calendars have a longer Christmas season, and we are doing that here. It is the second week that we're celebrating Epiphany. Um, we're, some, some calendars celebrate Epiphany all the way until the 3rd, I think, of March, which is uh, great. I didn't realize. But um, we decided this year we're going to do a series of three, uh, three weeks where we're talking about and learning about Epiphany. So if you're wondering, why do we still have the Christmas things up? Let's say it's because of that. <clears throat> uh, all right. There we go. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, we know what epiphany means, right? When somebody walks into work and their eyes are gleaming and they go, oh, my gosh, I just had an epiphany. What does that mean? It's this moment when you suddenly realize, you suddenly become conscious of something that's very important to you. It's the aha moment, and everything comes together that you've been waiting for. And in church, uh, traditionally, it's the season when we celebrate the arrival of the wise men or the magi to come and visit Jesus. Um, We call it Epiphany because they were the first non-Jews, we call it Gentiles, the first Gentiles to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, was the one who was sent from God. And so they have this epiphany about Jesus, and they they worship him as God's chosen one. And they were the first, but not the last. There are so many great epiphany stories all the way through Scripture, aren't there? You know some of them. There's so many amazing accounts of someone just suddenly realizing understanding something extremely important to them, something about who God is. So this morning we're going to talk about the epiphany of uh, Zacchaeus. And this story is found in Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, and I'm going to put it up on the screen for us in a minute. Uh, let's, let's look at this story. This is, this is, it's quite the story. Um, I'll read it for you. He entered Jericho, so this is Jesus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. 
And when they saw it, that's the whole crowd, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's a great story. If you went to Sunday school, you probably remember this story. I think we made a craft once where, I don't even know how they did this, where there was like a Zacchaeus attached to this little string that you pulled on the back of the paper and you hopped up the tree and down the tree. Like, that's a good story, right? So, okay. So it's a great story. A man wants to see Jesus, but he's too short to see him over the crowd. little shout out here to all my short friends, right? That is a real struggle. It's a real struggle. So he runs up ahead and he climbs up a tree to get a better view. And then Jesus stops right at that tree and calls the man down and invites himself over for supper. And the man is so moved by his interaction with Jesus that he changes his business practices and pays everyone back what he's stolen. It's a good story just like that. But whenever there's a story that is set in a culture that's different from ours, we can be sure that there are cultural cues that we're missing. You know, there are words that mean things that we gloss right over because they don't mean anything to us, really. Here's a little example. In the fall, we had a a rock concert here for the youth group one Friday night. And about 25 or 30 uh, kids from Bountiful um, came to the concert, which is amazing, right? When I told my sister that story, I used almost those exact words. And my sister lives in Ontario, and she went, cool, (laughs) some extra kids came to the concert. That's great. She didn't get it, right? To her, she has no idea what Bountiful is. To her, that sounded like it's a little town nearby, and some kids drove over and came to the concert. That's it. It's different, isn't it, if you live in Creston? Anyone who lives in Creston knows that Bountiful is prime, like that, that's a tight community. And it's made up of folks who follow some traditional uh, values, including sometimes multiple marriages. And kids coming in from Bountiful is amazing because they're often not allowed uh, to participate in activities outside their own community. We know how significant it is. Wonderful that their parents felt comfortable and safe to bring them here. We just immediately hear that story and we're delighted. But if you're not from here, you miss that because that's all cultural context and cues. And so in the same way, we sometimes miss things when we're reading the Bible because we don't understand the culture, so we don't know what the words mean. So I'm going to highlight a couple of those things for us in the story of Zacchaeus. First of all, Uh, the author tells us that Jesus was just passing through, which is a little bit more significant than it seems because Jesus was quite the local celebrity, right? Like, he's a big deal. And the people of Jericho would have expected him to stay, at least stay over one night. In Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is so important. It's an honor to have someone as a guest in your home. It's an honor that they would choose you as the host. 
So it would be a bit of a letdown to the whole community that Jesus is just going to pass through and not stop. The whole crowd would be disappointed that he wasn't going to stay in their town. Well, the second thing we learn is that that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector and he was rich. Here's why that's important. The Roman government didn't just hire people to be tax collectors. They, They sort of auctioned that job off and sold it to the highest bidder. And then the people who won the bid, they didn't, they didn't get a salary necessarily, but after they paid the government whatever they had agreed to pay them, they were allowed to keep whatever money was left over. So that means that, um, oh, let me say this too, because I learned this this week. The rate of tax, like what you were supposed to pay in your taxes, wasn't public knowledge. You couldn't find that out anywhere. <laughs> and so, Nobody knew what they were supposed to pay. Nobody knew what had been promised to the government. And that means that the tax collectors, basically, they had free reign. They could knock on your door and demand however much money they wanted. And then at the end of the season of collecting, they paid the Roman government, whatever it was, and they kept all the rest. So this picture starts to emerge of Zacchaeus. Because he's not just a random short guy, right? He is, he was the highest bidder for the tax collection. So he promised the government the most money from that area. And on top of that, he's rich. So it means that he is collecting way more money from the people that he needs to. He's living large and they're paying for it. And they know that. And there's nothing they can do about it. Well, nothing substantial, but there are lots of petty things they can do about it, right? Like not letting him see through the crowd, for instance. Like if Zacchaeus had been a respected member of of the community, the crowd would have parted to make way for him to come through. And even if he had just been a neutral member of the community who was short, they still might have like made space so he could peek over. But that is not what's happening. They don't do it. They just lock shoulders and block his view. It's a small but effective way to stick it to him. But Zacchaeus really, really, really wants to see Jesus. He's desperate to see him. Some of you are already going to have heard this story because I put it in my Friday email, but um, I have some friends, David and Shannon Lamb, and they are very serious biblical scholars. Like David is a professor of Old Testament theology and an author, and Shannon is a Bible teacher and a minister to university students. Very, very serious. And anyway, they were getting ready to teach this story once, the story of Zacchaeus, and they wanted to figure out, like, how do we get into the culture and know what it's like? And so... Um, David went rummaging around in a back closet and found a robe from an old, like a Christmas pageant. And so he put this robe on, and then he ran around the backyard a few times and climbed their tree. Yeah. And Shannon recorded that. Like, it's on video. I've seen the video. I would give anything to have that video, but I don't. (laughs) So you will just have to use the power of your imagination Like, really, try to imagine a man in your life, or if you're a man, you can imagine yourself, climbing a tree in a bathrobe. Yeah, 
try to imagine it. I could see your shoulders. George wants to try it out. Okay. Um, that is an undignified event, right? People do not do that. In fact, what we know is that in this culture, men do not run. They don't run, especially men of high position or authority. And so listen, if you're ever reading along a story in the Bible and it says a man was running somewhere, you got to stop because that does not happen. They are abandoning all the rules of social order and whatever they're doing is unimaginably important to them. They didn't run. So that's how we know how much seeing Jesus meant to Zacchaeus, because when he can't get through the crowd, he hikes up his robes and runs. And as if that wasn't enough, he climbs up a tree. Now, here's the interesting thing that I learned this week doing the research. It is quite significant that Luke says a sycamore tree. It's not an American sycamore like we're used to. I had one of those in my front yard growing up. It's a sycamore fig tree. And there was a superstition about sycamore figs because the branches, see how the branches are so, so wide and low? The branches are so wide they form this kind of tent. And there's this superstitious belief that anything that someone was doing underneath one part of the tree would sort of infect every anybody else who was under any other part. So, I mean, I don't know how often this happens, but if somebody's like committing murder under one part of the tree and you happen to be under another part, that you're responsible for that murder also. Yikes. Okay. So, um I am not suggesting that you should believe that superstition. But I want us to know about that belief because here's what it meant. It meant that sycamore fig trees were not allowed to be grown inside city limits. They didn't want that kind of risk. They didn't want anybody accidentally underneath the fig tree. So they had to be grown. They had to be cut down unless they were 50 feet outside the city limits. Who cares, right? Well, think about this. Jesus comes, I don't know what shape Jericho is, but, okay, so the city on a map. Jesus comes into Jericho, and he's just going to pass through. And somewhere in the middle, a crowd has gathered to see him. Like, I'm just guessing it's the middle, but, okay. And Zacchaeus can't see, and so he starts running, and he runs all the way to 50 feet outside the town limits. And climbs up this tree because Jesus is going to come that way. He's coming right through the city. That could be a long run. And it means that when Jesus gets to that tree, he has already come all the way through the town. He meant to just walk through Jericho and go on about his business. He's on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And that's his agenda and that's what he's doing. And then he stops at that tree and he looks up and he changes his plans. Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down because I need to stay at your house tonight. And we said already it's considered such an honor in that culture when someone stays at your house as a guest. Sometimes we don't feel that way, do we? Sometimes it feels like a tiny imposition (laughs) when someone stays at our house as a guest. Sometimes it just, it feels like, okay, that's good. I'm glad that they're staying. I better vacuum, right? That's okay. It's different here. 
It's not an imposition. It's not just pleasant. It's like an award. It's a mark of distinction. You're blessed to have welcomed someone in. You know how any hotel, like sometimes you go to a hotel somewhere in Canada, and if it's a small town, it can be a random place, and they'll have like a big plaque that Queen Elizabeth stayed in this room. Have you ever done, have you ever seen that? It's so funny. And weird things like, like the framed copies of where she signed in on the guest book and crossed it out if she made a mistake. But that's like, it's like a really big deal. We mark that. Hotels will write about it in their advertising. It's such an honor to have hosted the royal family. Well, this is the same. And if you're the guest, you have to be pretty aware of who you bestow that honor upon. <laughs> In the city, right? Who You have to choose to stay with someone worthy. Stay with someone righteous. Someone distinguished in the community. Especially if you are kind of a celebrity like Jesus is. But instead of choosing someone worthy, he's choosing the chief tax collector. The man who everyone despises. And for good reason, he's been defrauding them, just like outright stealing from them for years. And the people in town are kind of grumbling, right? They're saying, oh, he's going to stay with somebody who's a sinner. Well, it's really hard for us to grasp from that comment how upsetting, insulting, disturbing that really was. right? So I've been trying to come up with an example And I'm going to use two political examples because tax collecting in the Roman Empire was a very political thing. Okay? And I want to just say, I'm not making a commentary about either one of these situations. What I'm trying to do is help us get a gut check for how this felt, inviting himself to Zacchaeus' house. So, Number one, you might be familiar with the Yellow Vest protesters in Canada. They're very concerned about a number of Prime Minister Trudeau's policies related to immigration and carbon taxes, among other things. And it would be, I think, fair to say, it's an understatement, that Justin is not their favorite guy. Right? Okay. So this story is what it would feel like if you were a Yellow Vest protester and a follower of Jesus, And when Jesus passes through town, he wants to stay with Trudeau. I mean, I know that's far from here, so it's a trip. But but that's who he picks. He's picking that guy that you think is down on you, is trying to take advantage of you, is making your life bad. Another example, if that one doesn't work for you, imagine being part of the gun control protests that are led by some of the students who survived school shootings in the U.S., right? And then when Jesus passes through, he wants to stay with Trump. Okay, now, if you feel upset with me for using those examples, because obviously I don't understand that that guy is the worst, that's the point. That's the point, right? That guy was the worst, That guy was taking advantage of the community. That guy was stripping people of the money that they earned, that they tried hard to earn. He's making their lives miserable. It feels awful. 
In both of the examples, both of those examples, the people in the crowd understand themselves to be victims. And if they believe in God, they surely expect God and Jesus to side with them. Because doesn't he look out for the oppressed? Doesn't he exact vengeance on oppressors? The people in this crowd, in this story, are the same. They're victims of an oppressor. They can't do anything to get out from under Zacchaeus' power. He's going to do this for their whole lives. And they expect that Jesus will be on their side. And so it's terrible to see him stop at that tree and look up and bestow this incredible honor on the man who's been making their lives miserable. They have no way of knowing what kind of epiphany Zacchaeus is about to have. All they know at that moment is anger and frustration and bitter, bitter disappointment. But Zacchaeus does have an epiphany. What I wouldn't give to have been a fly on the wall in his place at supper to know what they talked about. I have no idea whether it's the conversation, just the sheer presence of Jesus, or the honor of being seen in a new way. But Zacchaeus realizes something. He has an aha moment. He is totally and utterly transformed. He stands up, actually makes a speech about it. Look, Lord. Half of all my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, and we know that he has, right, of anything, I will restore it fourfold. Now, every time I study this story, somebody points out that this math is not going to add up. There's no way, <laughs> there's no way that he's going to be able to pay back four times as much money. He's going to run out really fast, especially if he starts by giving away half of everything he owns. That's true. Again, culture, really important. This kind of exaggerated promising, this is the culturally accepted way to indicate sincerity. If he had been more measured in his response, which is what we wish for, right? Because we're Canadian. We wish that he was saying, okay, look, um, like, I'm sorry. I'm going to do the very best I can here. I mean, I have spent a lot of money. Uh, but I'm going to sell whatever I can, and I'm going to give back as much as possible, and, and I'm going to keep on working to make it right. right. That's what we think. That sounds that sounds more genuine to us. It would have sounded half-hearted in this culture. It would have sounded like he was making excuses. The exaggeration is a mark of sincere desire and intention to make things right and to change. And one of the ways that we know that he was sincere is that Jesus believes him. Jesus doesn't say, okay, are you sure? Because you have really been going after these people. He doesn't. He He just believes him. He says, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. That's just a way of saying this man also belongs to the people of God. He is counted among us, too. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus has a true epiphany. He is a changed man. And this is an epiphany by divine selection. 
What I mean is that Jesus is the one who chose and initiated this. He's the one who made the transformation possible, right? Zacchaeus, he wasn't throwing himself at Jesus. Like, he wants to see him, but he's not begging for forgiveness. He's not trying to change. He's up in a tree watching. And it certainly was not an epiphany by popular vote, right? That wouldn't happen. It's epiphany by divine selection. And that is what makes this story so uncomfortable. Because Zacchaeus was the oppressor. There's no way around that. And we don't usually think too much about Jesus choosing the oppressor. We talk about justice for the oppressed. We need to. And if we're being honest, what we want for the oppressor is the same kind of justice, but the other side, by which we mean vengeance, right? That's what we want. We want them to pay. And we're in good company. All through the fall, when we were reading the Psalms together, uh, that's what the people in the Psalms are asking for, isn't it? Like, sometimes we actually feel a little uncomfortable reading the Psalms because it's all like, would you slay my oppressor, cast him out, cut him off, defeat him, leave him in ruin? This story is upside down. Jesus uses this imagery of coming to seek and save the lost, which reminds us of that, you know, that classic story where the shepherd leaves 99 sheep and goes out looking for one that was lost. And I don't know about you, but when I imagine that story, like I always picture that one lost sheep being this tiny, weak, helpless little lamb, maybe with a broken leg, right? It's dirty. But what if, what if? The one lost sheep is a powerful, rich, hated, tyrannical oppressor. The story is upside down. And it's not the only example. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the books in the New Testament, he's the same. He started out his career tracking down and murdering Christians. He was not trying to find Jesus, but Jesus wanted to find Paul, right? So there's a bright light on the road and temporary blindness and a supernatural voice. And then within days, Paul becomes one of the most powerful voices compelling people to follow Jesus. Epiphany by divine selection. That's the only way to explain it. Last week, Tom talked about epiphany by divine accommodation. And he asked us, what does the story of the wise men and the star teach us about God? We talked about how God accommodates to us. He reaches to us. He uses language and signs that we can understand to help us come to realization about him. He doesn't require us to meet us on his terms Right? He doesn't require us to speak Greek and Hebrew. We were grateful for that, I remember. He reaches, he adjusts, he accommodates so that these foreign astrologers who are seeking knowledge in the patterns of the skies are counted among the first to recognize who Jesus really was. Well, this week I want to ask the same thing. What does the story of Zacchaeus' epiphany by divine selection tell us about God? And we have a little bit of time, so I'm going to ask you. Okay, so everybody stretch a little bit. 
What does this story teach us about God? What does it mean about God? Anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, that he loves us all. Oh, even those ones. (laughs) Right? It feels like that. Yeah, he loves us all. Thanks, Dave. Anybody else? Oh, good point. That God sees a bigger plan, a bigger perspective. And sometimes he goes like really goes after people like kings in the Old Testament who could change things for a whole group of people. Good, that's a great point. Mm-hmm, Kevin. Oh, good, he goes after those who need change the most. Yeah, that's great. Like this, Zacchaeus really needed his heart flipped, turned upside down. Anybody else? Those are great points. What does this teach us about God? God, first of all, wants everyone. And that can be uncomfortable and deeply annoying. He has incredible grace, even for oppressors. Second, God will go to extreme lengths to get the people he wants. Think about Paul and, of course, Zacchaeus and so many people that you know that you never thought would darken the doors of a church, let alone find themselves really interested in Jesus, right? God can set things up. He can call people to himself. And finally, with God, any change in any person is completely possible. No one is beyond hope. No one is too awful. No one is too far gone. God can always bring epiphany. Jesus can always bring transformation. So how do we respond to that? Well, I want to challenge us a couple of ways. I want to challenge us to believe, first of all, that what was true about Jesus in this story is still true about him today. I want us to believe that he's still seeking out people in positions of power, still inviting himself over, offering them the possibility to become who they were truly meant to be. And this is hard. I want us to believe for epiphany for the people that we know to be oppressors today. Believe that for them. As people, that's not our natural tendency. Our tendency is to criticize and polarize and mock and ridicule and tear down. So when we don't like what the school board decides or what the town council spends money on or which political party is elected, well, let's just say that if they were trying to see Jesus in a parade, we would be squishing our shoulders up against each other, keeping them in the back. We can be kind of petty. People are just like that. But if we are following Jesus, and we are, it's different. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about things that are going wrong or that are unjust. We should. We should be concerned, educated, engaged citizens, 100%. But let's do it. Let's do it with the respect and the self-control and the decency and the hope 
the hope that comes from knowing God might just, God might just call that person to himself and then they would be my brother or sister. And finally, my challenge for us is that we pray for the people who oppress us, who are against us. Pray for them. Pray for mercy and for change and for epiphany. God literally never gives up on people. There's a, there's a chapter in Ezekiel. It's a book in the Old Testament, chapter 33. And God is talking to the Israelites at a time when they are so beaten down. They think that they have done so much wrong. They have messed up so badly that nothing they can do can ever make a difference. And that they would be better off dead. And God says this. It's one of my favorite parts of the Old Testament. As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from their ways and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why would you die, O house of Israel? I think it's so beautiful. God is not confused. He acknowledges the wickedness. He sees what's there. But he's not looking for vengeance. He doesn't want to blast anybody. He isn't looking to punish Zacchaeus or Trudeau or Trump or your boss at work or your pushy neighbor. He's not. No, he is looking to bring transformation, to bring redemption. He's looking for a new start. God wants to bring epiphany. In the most unexpected places. Let's pray for that. Father, would you bring epiphany that we cannot even imagine? There are so many places in our lives and in the world where rulers are unjust, where they're not looking out for the good of their people. We pray that your spirit would find a way in. We pray for all of the people around them, all of the aides and the helpers and the workers and the administrative assistants, all the people in every meeting that they see. Would you put people in those positions who are believers? Would you give them dreams they don't understand? We pray that you would bring those people epiphany, aha moment, sudden realization about who you are and what that means for their lives. And may they participate in flipping upside down and bringing your kingdom to all the world. We pray all those things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey. Whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following him for years. If you have been listening for a while, perhaps you're wondering how you can support the church financially. 
To find out, please go to ericksoncovenant.ca and click on the Donate tab. Thank you for being part of this journey with us. Every day we are seeking to help people to find and follow Jesus.